welcome to the Shushbox Podcast, a safe space for self-expression, healing, and empowerment. Hosted by me, Sunita, founder of Shushbox, the wellness platform supporting survivors of sexual trauma. Hi friends, and welcome back for another episode of the Shushbox Podcast. In today's episode, we're joined by the amazing Dr. Candice Cooper-Lovett, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist and sex therapist. She blends both psychotherapy and spirituality into her practice and has over 15 years of experience working with individuals, couples and families. I am going to add a small trigger warning to this episode as we talk about child sexual abuse cases and question why perpetrators do what they do. So please be mindful of your emotions whilst listening. And if you have any questions or feedback, you can reach us at hello at shushbox.com. You can also access our support page on the website, www.shushbox.com. Welcome, Dr. Candice Cooper-Lovett to the Shush yes, Podcast. Yes. yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to today. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. So yes, it's yes. always nice speaking with you. We've had a few conversations now on yes, Instagram. Um, yes, for sure. So before we go into it, because I know the conversation that we're going to have today is actually quite a, I guess you could say quite a sensitive one. I mean, everything we yeah, do on the podcast can be quite sensitive, but I feel like this yeah. conversation in particular is going to have a mixed reaction very much due so. to what we're talking about. But before we mm-hmm. go into the that part of it, <laughs> should we start with you maybe get, giving yourself an introduction for sure. those listeners who might not know uh, all the things sure. that you're doing? Absolutely, yes. So we already got my name into the into the mix. So I have to add that, you know, I am a licensed manager, family therapist and sex therapist, hopefully be certified this year. I'm trying to get all this paperwork together. It's a lot. Uh, but as well as a tantric, uh, certified tantric healer and heart worker. So um, now I have a group private practice in Atlanta, Georgia, which focused on holistic care uh, that looks at mind, body, and spirit. So I have five clinicians that work underneath me. One is a student intern. The other ones are in their process of licensure. And so our uh, practice focuses on, you know, survivors of sexual abuse, assault, uh, domestic violence, as well as, uh, you know, anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, a couple of those different things as well. But we make sure to add a holistic and spiritual emphasis in mental health and emotional wellness as well. So that's kind of, and I'm native of Buffalo, New York, and I moved down to Atlanta, Georgia back in 2014, started my practice in 2015. So I've been going strong ever since. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, you're doing it all, aren't you? And we always talk about this every time I connect. I'm like, gosh, you really do connect. What I like with the work that you do is you connect that mind, body, and spirit into yes. it as now well with obviously Absolutely. the spirituality side of things when we very first yes. connected we were talking uh you know on that psychotherapy side of, of mm-hmm. the work that you're doing and you know that's Absolutely. even grown with you hasn't it over the last few years into the more um looking at spirituality yes. as well absolutely most definitely and I find how helpful it is to have that incorporated now you know I even done uh started doing tantra sessions and heart work sessions with some of my clients who are open to it because the past couple of months I've been doing like one free session for a particular population. So March was for, you know, women and women's empowerment month. You know, April was for sexual abuse or sexual assault survivors. And then this month doing it for mothers. So, you know, just to have and give back and then just allow these populations to be ported to 
uh, because a lot of times we don't allow ourselves to receive the way we need to receive. So it just adds the extra flair, so to say. That pizzazz. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, oh, okay. I'll take that too. <laughs> and how do you have a lot of your clients been uh, quite receptive to looking at? Because I think tantra, mm-hmm. you know, it has so many people have like a preconceived uh, idea of what tantra is. So have a lot of your yes. clients been a bit reluctant or being a bit like, how is tantra going to heal me? <laughs> exactly. Or what is this supposed to look like? What am I expecting? You know, and I had one client, she's like, well, I don't have no man. And I don't want the trigger stuff. I said, girl, this is not, the pleasure part is literally maybe 10, 15% of it. The other 85% is all healing work. Even with focusing on heart work, because heart work is just all focused on the heart, how we heal the heart, because we carry a lot of things in that space. And so, you know, at first they kind of come off because they don't know what to expect because it's something new and different. But all the ones I've had so far have been very receptive. You know, one woman, because uh, I asked them to give me some testimonials or give an idea of what their experience was. And one woman, she said, I ain't gonna lie. I thought it was a bunch of BS at first, but she said, but then you got me good within a few seconds. <laughs> she said, I start crying. I don't know why. I said, oh, look, it's trying to be skeptical. But the thing is, I tell them, just come with an open mind and an open heart and just see what it does for you. Yeah, that's a, a great way. I mean, in anything, mm-hmm. especially in the healing journey, you know, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a scary place going to those deep places within and I think having an open heart keeping an open heart it's not easy I'm gonna I'm it's like not. keep an open heart guys but it's not like it's like what keep over heart no I've been hurt keep an, yeah. keep an open heart of well I guess you know what so that's great to hear obviously the work that you're doing but the actual yeah. conversation we were going to have today is based mm-hmm. on a conversation you and I had uh, a couple of months mm-hmm. ago or actually before Christmas now um looking yeah. at the work that you've also done with mm-hmm perpetrators so mm-hmm. this conversation I feel uh, survivors or just society in general might need to have an open mind you could say because we're looking yeah. at why do perpetrators perpetrate right yeah definitely definitely and you know I had did during my uh master's program going lead into my first job postmasters uh I work with my supervisor who specializes in working with offenders of sexual abuse so you know and I was a reflector for call it reflecting team and so we sat on the outside in the back and reflected on the process that we've seen throughout the session of group because we had to do it every Thursday seven in the morning because I remember that I'm not a morning person so um but I remember being one of the only ones in my cohort who actually wanted to work with that population and I completely understand you know why that's the case but having that experience did help me to find some or have some insight as to what goes on for them uh and I, what I recognize is that hurt people hurt people mm-hmm. I would say 80 percent of the individuals who were in that group has sexual abuse history themselves. The other 20% was on some random stuff, wrong place, wrong time, didn't know the person's age, because like, especially when you're dealing with teens, but still there is some level of accountability there for the adult in that situation. So it's definitely not the easiest population to work with. You have to be very stern in your style. My supervisor, she was this little small 90-year-old white woman but she didn't play no games like she like if she felt like they were being dishonest she would definitely go for the blow as it relates to holding them accountable and Mm, I know you can say hurt people hurt people well what about those hurt people who don't hurt people that's very true that's very true and that's the thing like I was so nervous my first group because I didn't know if I would be triggered or not because of the way 
they think or process. So my supervisor told me, she said, if you could just find one good thing to care about them about or hold on to that, that will get you through. So I look for the humanness in them because a lot of times they become, they get dehumanized. They become monsters. They become like all these things, which I totally understand. Like I said, therapists who work with that population also get ostracized, which makes sense because it's like, hold on, you work with them? Uh-uh, we don't want to work with you. You know, and so you even therapists who work with that population are very discreet about that because it is that sense of like, okay, well, I made the choice to not do that, but you did, you know? And so it's just kind of like, yeah, and true. And this is where they get held accountable at. A lot of people, I wouldn't even expect them to have that kind of understanding in that way because even my colleagues don't. Like I said, I was literally the only one in my cohort that wanted to work with that population. Uh, So, Mm -hmm. you know, and for her, she was like, you would literally be my first therapist of color on this reflecting team. And I think it would be helpful for some of the people who are of color themselves to see some representation. Mm -hmm. Um, And it did make some people more comfortable to have me there. We were talking about this on another podcast actually the other the other week on um mm-hmm. uh, on marginalized survivors and yeah having people that yes. you can see that you you know if you see something, see something that reflects yourself you're more comfortable sometimes that in opening up um, yes I'm not I don't really know how to get into this topic to be honest because it's just such a tricky one um, it is as a it is it really is because I feel like there has to be treatment for those who sexually offend so they don't do it again. So somebody has to do the treatment on the one end. And so one of their activities, now this wasn't with the intent to mail off the letter, but to send a letter or to write a letter of apology to the person that they victimized. Um, So that was a part of that process, but they had to be ready to admit and acknowledge everything that they had done. And so even the person on the other side, some um, people would prefer to not ever have any communication with the person who sexually offended them uh whereas others would rather they want to have some sense of um what is it some sense of closure because i've had clients who have wanted to like how can i put this some clients still interact to some degree with their offender so it was a you know like say for example it was the spouse of a parent um, and yeah. they still go to holiday parties or something like that. And I remember having a situation where the person was like that. And I was like, so how are you going to handle this? She, her thing was like, I'm just going to push it back and deal with it. But then it was like, no, I, I've always done that. I'm tired of doing that. Mm-hmm. And so her thing was, I want to have a conversation with them. So in my, in my talking about it, my, the important piece for me to, to help her understand was, what's the why behind why you want to talk to him? Because if you're looking for validation, if you're looking for an apology and he don't give it, then it's going to crush you. Mm. So understand what that is. Are you doing it because you just need to get this off your chest to heal? Because sometimes now it would be nice if the person would say, hey, I apologize, I was wrong. But sometimes they may not do that, Mm. which may be re-triggering or re-traumatizing again. And so if you go into it with the expectation of I'm not expecting them to tell me what I want to hear, I'm just getting this off my chest to heal for those who want to do that. I think, do when you speak to the perpetrators, I mean, I, did, I know we were talking about it earlier. What do we even call them? Is it perpetrators or minor? Yeah. Attra- I mean, some not everybody is a, a minor bo- attractive person, but what, you know, yeah. what's the terminology? Like, you know, yeah. are they criminals? They're criminals. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like so confused. Yeah, I'm so yeah. Confused yeah. It's because- so many people. I know. It's a lot. Yeah. And people call them a lot of different things. But like I said, like being like 
a sex therapist who is more mindful of language and, and labels. You know, I used to say those who sexually offend mm-hmm. minors and or adults, because some, but sometimes they have a very specific thing with minors. And then, there, and I found out like in my uh, sex therapy uh, governing organization, which is ASEX, American Association of Sexologists, mm-hmm. uh, sex therapists and counselors, uh, that they have a group for therapists who specialize in working with minor attractive persons. And so, like I said, the goal of this whole thing is to not one to know who those people are, because there is a lot of shame involved and hiding. Secondly, if they haven't offended, how can we prevent that from happening through treatment? So, and this is by calling that, because these are people who, because some people out here who are minor attractive persons who have not acted upon it. Mm-hmm. So how can we get it to a point where we can make it, what's the word, safe enough for them to seek someone out to get the treatment they need so that they do not offend or hurt someone. How does that work then? How does somebody who is a minor attracted person before acting out on what they're feeling, how do they, do they have to go to therapy themselves or like, how do they get, so they would be like, right, I am feeling this way. I don't want to act out on it. They then go and seek that therapy. Absolutely. Yes. They will have to seek therapy because, you know, like I said, when I worked with them, it was on the back end. They have already went to jail or whatever it was or had defect, you know, now they're registered sex offenders. Mm-hmm. All of them were. And so before they get to that point, how can we intervene in such a way to help, you know, facilitate some healing so that they're not in that space? Because, you know, mentally, it, to me, it's a sickness. Is it a mental illness? It used to call them paraphilias, but they, the DSM revised version had just came out not too long ago. So they call this something, I forget the, the label they're giving it now. And I literally just saw it yesterday going on for something with a client in regards to a diagnosis. It is considered, because it's considered coercive, it is abusive. So it's a problem because in the field of sex, sexuality is sex. We try our best not to pathologize, but when it comes to children and hurt, coerciveness, once again, and abuse, that's at the point where it's like this is pathological this is not okay you know and so as it relates to saying calling a mental illness i don't know if i want to call it that however there is something going on in the mind that we can't quite pinpoint like what is going on here but usually it's shaped from some form of trauma or relational injury now there was one case where it was a relational injury but he was doing it to get back at his brother so he sexually abused his niece he said i never had an interest isn't it? And that's why I felt he's like, I don't have an interest in children. I don't like kids. I don't have a sexual agenda, but I did it to get back at him because he hurt me. But now you're a registered sex mm-hmm. offender for the rest of your life. So was it worth that? You know? Um, oh and for him, yeah, that is the, yeah. the thinking behind that. I feel like the minor attracted persons, uh, the people who were seeking out therapy before acting on it, that's a totally yes. different conversation yes. on that yes. because they're actually actively, like, they're already taking accountability. They're already Absolutely. acknowledging how they feel and taking yes. those steps. And I mean, society yes. might look at them and be like, how can you even be a minor attracted yeah. person? But at least, you know, that needs to shift in society because at least they're Absolutely. acknowledging that they're feeling something yes. uh, and not and acting can, out on it. So that conversation yes. needs to be one that is very open. Okay, we might Absolutely. not understand it but you know as we've said here sometimes it's a case of relationship trauma mm-hmm. um you know maybe they've experienced sexual trauma in their childhood mm-hmm. and that's why they're feeling it Absolutely. um but Absolutely. i feel like they're taking a bit more of a forward-thinking approach to it mm-hmm. that's good Absolutely. I guess that's yeah preventative it's preventative yeah, it's more preventative if we can do that and catch it on the front end as opposed to it happening on the back end because now you don't hurt 
somebody or somebody's, you know, um, in that process. And now not only do we have to figure this piece out on the perpetrating end, but now we have to look at how we can heal the hurt people that they hurt, you know, and that's a whole other thing in itself. So we can prevent that. Then that's all the more creating a better society. You know, and for those people to acknowledge that, because that was a big piece of the therapy for those who have already offended, they have to be held accountable because it was one client in particular who always said, you know, they always had to go around the room at the beginning of each session and say why they're there and what they did. And one guy will always say, oh, inappropriate touch of a minor. And I I remember specifically my supervisor got pissed off. She was like, I'm tired of you saying that. You sodomized a five-year-old boy and that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And so it pissed him off. But the thing is, she was like, you have to acknowledge it because the only way you're going to be able to get through this is acknowledging exactly what you did. Because by not acknowledging it, it tells me that you're going to do it again. Do all perpetrators who have gone through with this, do they all get access to this therapy after? No. I don't think all of them do. And I think she was one of the few programs, because that's when I was in New York State, mm. um, who actually had a thing where, okay, after they're released, they have to go to group therapy. As long as we say they have to go. She said, I don't feel comfortable with releasing them from this until I feel confident in the fact that they're not going to do it again. We can't guarantee it, but she said, I want to feel confident and trust that they've gotten the work and they've done the work to the point where I know that they have successfully been rehabilitated, so to say. This is it. It's rehabilitation, isn't it? It's like... um, I don't know if you could say it's like an addiction or whatever, but it's like, yeah, when yeah. You, you don't just go to prison, you know, s- spend some time in like two two years, you know, the mm-hmm. conviction rate of uh, perpetrators mm-hmm. is very low, as we know. So those mm-hmm. ones that do end up going to prison and then coming back mm-hmm. out, you know, after a short yeah. amount of time, it's not like they're just going to have sat staring at a wall. Well, they might have done exactly. sat staring at the wall, realizing what they've done wrong. Yes, um, exactly. Be, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It has to be some kind of treatment. Yeah, because yeah. when there is no treatment there is a higher recidivism rate they're more likely to do it again because they didn't get the treatment they needed there was only one person in the group that actually got treatment while he was in prison no one else did so that was their first form of treatment after they got released so this is very like yeah not a lot of people are doing you know doing Uh this because like you say they get put in a box or almost like shut out of society but you know for society to really progress and move forward it's 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 the same as the whole trauma it's survivors not being able to talk about it the shame around it It you know I'm a survivor of sexual trauma so you know Mm -hmm. there was a point where Mm -hmm. I just you know was so angry at that person Mm -hmm. or so angry at the pain it caused to the people in my life that I've seen it affect but you know that comes with my personal journey has been hitting a point of forgiveness and not feeling sorry yeah. for the person, but almost no. feeling sorry for the person a little bit, being like, yeah. right, okay, well, where were they? Yeah. Where, how did they come about doing what they did? Mm-hmm. You know, it goes mm-hmm. back to looking yeah. at the layers. It them. Absolutely, the layers of it. And not from a place of feeling like you've got to take care of them or to minimize your experience by understanding theirs by any means. Absolutely not, because they still have to be accountable for that. But it does get some context. You know what I mean? And even with one of the people, he didn't sexually offend someone, but he was watching child porn while he was at work. I don't know what possessed him to do that. But then they must have been tracking them. The FBI came and he had to serve a year and a half. But the fascinating piece about that story was that the sec- the porn that he was watching was the thing that happened to him when he was a kid. So it was a little boy being sexually abused by two grown women. And that was the porn he was watching. 
So he was acting this is out where it gets, This is where it does. Yeah. It's so complex, sexual trauma. Sexuality, yeah. sexual trauma, sexual abuse. It's not an easy conversation. It's not mm-hmm. one that's straightforward. It's not black and white. Like, it's that not. is somebody who's experienced it in childhood. So they're trying to yeah. almost, like maybe not getting enjoyment from it. Maybe like you say, they're trying to understand. Yeah, understand or cope with it or feel like, I don't know, in some people's case, some sense of power. You know what I mean? Because they felt powerless in that situation. So therefore, I'm kind of, that's just taking my power back kind of thing. Like Mm -hmm. even people who have porn issues, which is a separate thing, but a lot of times the porn that they watch is a reflection of the trauma that they've had as well. Mm. Well, I mean, even just talking about getting that power back, like a lot of survivors, mm-hmm. you know, can be like hypersexual, hypersexual. For yes. me, I was like hypersexual. Like everything was mm-hmm. oversexual, you know, just like mm-hmm. to get that feeling of power. Like I'm in control. Mm-hmm. I was like having a lot of sex <laughs> to be like, yeah, this oh, is, for sure. you know, I'm taking that power back. Yeah, but really, it wasn't absolutely. coming from a fulfilling place. It was coming from a place yeah. of... Uh, fear almost of you know absolutely take that power but really I already had there's no power to really I got lost yeah definitely but it feel like you have to like you said and it is on opposite sides of the spectrum because even survivors that I've worked with her way of taking her power was I'm not going to take a shower or get in a Mm. bathtub because her dad said she abused her in there Mm. you know and so her thing she had a thing with showers like no but and I'm going to keep people away from me because I know they're not going to want me if I smell bad so she was very conscious of what she was doing but she felt empowered in what she was doing so it was a big deal when she called me and told me she finally took a shower. That was a big deal. And people from the outside looking in wouldn't understand that. But it was like, I was so happy because I felt like that was a breakthrough for her. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, when going back to the perpetrators then. So when yeah. you're working with them and when you were, you know, in those group sessions, mm-hmm. did you find a lot of them showed like remorse for what they did or? Some of them, yes, for sure. Some of them, yes, uh, because they saw the impact. And in one case... It was a grandfather. And so, you know, the thing about sexual abuse to people you're related to, it's kind of like, I still love them. And so they couldn't see him anymore. They, you know, obvious, for obvious reasons, but it was a loss for the granddaughters. They were hurting that they couldn't see him anymore, even though he was hurting them. And so he felt this huge sense of guilt and remorse of the fact of what have I done? Hmm. What have I done? You know? And so it was like, but, some of the other people, no. And that's what would get us angry. Uh, and that's where my supervisor would have to kind of go in for the kill and like kind of in so many words, rip somebody's heads off because it's like you're not understanding and you're not getting it because you're still not even acknowledging what you've done. And sometimes you have to catch them in a lie. Sometimes they lie. But there were some that were very remorseful. Like the one that did treatment in jail, he was, I want to say, one of the best group members. He was like our co-facilitator because he had went through over a year and a half of treatment. And so he would also challenge some of his peers in regards to some of the things that they would say. But there were some that were incredibly remorseful, particularly the one that did the sexual abuse to his brother's daughter. He was like, you know what? I could have went about that a different way um, because I hurt somebody because I was hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, but it been other people who didn't feel remorse or trying to justify what they did because one guy was like oh well she was playing with her breasts in front of me the girl is 10 years old sir <laughs> it doesn't matter how old she is you know it's just like why did you even act on that and that was his niece you know and so it was just things where it was like challenging them on like hey this is not this not making sense right here this not adding up what you're saying but the ones who are remorseful I noticed were the ones who had been in it for a while 
who have been getting treatment for a while when they started recognizing how their behaviors have impacted and hurt others. But that takes a level of introspection. I'm sorry. Yeah, gosh, it would take a level of introspection for sure. I was going to say, did you have any certain like techniques to going into like to get like, to get the most yeah. beneficial result like what were the techniques that you were following uh, yeah so basically like she would do an open group so the way the style like i said the style was very like uh i don't i hate to use the word confrontational style in a therapeutic context but it was a confrontational style and so the whole thing I, what i realized what, what we were doing was getting them to be transparent and acknowledge exactly what they've done in the pain they have caused. That was the literally the same thing every week because, and then they could talk about their life stuff or what they had going on. But a lot of times they're talking about the impact of being a registered sex offender and how that's impacting them. And then the choice to not do it again, because they were realizing the ramifications of that choice. And so it was a lot of like, I guess you could call it like real talk therapy, uh, calling them out on a bull when those things happen, but it was no like template. So to say it was literally like an open group. So every week she would start off saying, okay, how has the week been? And it just kind of goes from there. But a lot of the, like I said, it's kind of like therapeutic tools and therapy that are called like common factors. So what are the common factors in the therapy room that we have? So there are more or less characteristics of the therapist. So it's like a therapist that is very direct and straightforward. A therapist isn't going to hold you accountable. A therapist that's going to lead with warmth and compassion all at the same time. So when we lead with that, the content is the content, but what we lead with is the thing that helps for the healing and the facilitating and the understanding. Because actually one of my clients, and it was interesting because it was a co-ed group. So it was both male and female offenders in that group, which was interesting. So, you know, some of those female offenders actually have became my client because one woman in particular had an extensive sexual abuse history. And she ended up having, and I recognize with the female offenders, they have full-blown relationships with teenagers. So these women were like in their like 25, 30 years old, having relationships with 14, 15-year-old boys mm. that were actually like in love with. But it was an extension, both those women, extensive sexual abuse histories. And she said, you know what? I know I'm screwed up. And she knew that. You know, but then his parents found out, of course, and that's when they reported her, et cetera, and it went down from there. But we had to lead with compassion enough for her to even be able to share that she had, because she went over her sexual trauma, and she became hypersexualized as well, very much so. You know, but it was providing that space for her. So you said about 80% of the people that were perpetrators Mm -hmm. had actually experienced sexual trauma themselves. Yes, yes. And then they just took it, they brain, you know, led them to a different route. Like you say, you become hypersexual, hypersexual. And even in some cases, they end up becoming offenders and abusing kids, which is not okay. And that's the thing. And they, to recognize, like, we can hold both. We can hold the fact that you have this history. And at the same time, you still have to be accountable for your actions. Yeah, again, it is that balance of hurt people, hurt people. But wait, those hurt people don't always hurt people. Be. So why are exactly. you hurting people? Yeah, so you still got to be accountable. We And that's where the direct confrontational style comes in, especially when they keep being in denial. And yeah, they'll get mad because I know one one of the people, he was like, okay, yeah, the one that with the granddaughters, he was like, yeah, I touched their crotch, okay? So he getting pissed off, but it's like, yeah, well, say what it is then. Don't just brush over it. Say exactly what you did. And he got mad because we made him say what he did. But that's what, that's what happened. You didn't have no problem doing it in the moment. So that's where we had to kind of go in. Like, okay, we led with compassion and, and care, but now we got to go in on you. Because now you're, you're disacknowledging 
what you did. And by doing that, you're invalidating your grandchildren's experiences. And we can't have that. And I always say I am on the side of the victim. Always. Or the survivor, rather, because I don't like to use the term victim. But they were victimized. I'm always on the side of the person that's been victimized. So their story trumps anything you have to say. It's so many words. I believe them. I don't believe you. So whatever they say happened, that's what happened. And you just need to catch up to them and also acknowledge for yourself that that is what happened as well. Because 92% of the time, they are telling the absolute truth. It's the, that little 8%, that probably isn't. But that's rare. That is incredibly rare. So, you know, those things. And I've seen it, what it looks like when a parent doesn't believe it. And that's incredibly hurtful. You're re-traumatizing a person again. That's because of society, though, isn't it? You know, they just don't want to yep. accept it, especially if it's like you say, someone that you know, a family member, yeah they don't they don't and I remember her mom getting upset with me because for the life of her she couldn't believe her daughter that her husband could have done some such a thing sorry mom your husband did it you know and her daughter the story never changed and never wavered ever she always was the same in her story very detailed mom just couldn't break she's like but they were so close to she wanted to show me all the pictures they took together that doesn't mean anything he still did it and I believe your daughter. So what they wanted me to do was testify in court to try to prove that he didn't do it. I said, no, I'm on your daughter's side. You know, I would have, I was seeing them for family therapy to work on their relationship because the daughter was devastated that her mom didn't believe her and she stayed with her husband. That's devastating. So she had to live with her dad, you know? And so I had to tell mom and mom didn't want to see me anymore. That's fine. But I'm telling you, I'm on your daughter's side. I'm not on his side because he don't want to acknowledge it. That's not my problem. But my job is to be here for her because you're not believing her either. She's traumatized again. So with the people, minor attracted persons or the people who sexually offended, your story is bull. Try it again because that'll make you wouldn't be in this position if it didn't happen. You know, and so a lot of times it's getting them to be real about what they've done because they will minimize it. They will brush over it. They will gloss over it, make it seem like, oh, it was just an appropriate touch of a minor. Mm, We're we going to need you to go into more detail about what that was like the one who sodomized a five-year-old kid. That's not just an appropriate touch of a minor. In my mind, I hear that. I assume you just fondled or something. You sodomized the five-year-old. Acknowledge that. And when they, the more they can acknowledge that and speak in their truth and say what they've done, the more and more you realize, the more further along they are in their rehabilitation process. And so that apology letter has to do a lot with every, they have to acknowledge every single thing that they did to all the people that they hurt. Is that fun to sit in? Absolutely not. But it's just a matter. This is the choice you made. And this is what you have to do. It's not easy stuff. And it can be triggered for trust. I got a lot of colleagues like, girl, you a good one because I can work with those people, you know, and I get it. I get it. It's not easy. And it takes a, a very patient, centered person with a special heart to work with that population because it's not easy. With the perpetrators, after they, you know, done what they'd done and they were in this therapy session with you, was them talking to you about their sexual abuse, personal sexual abuse, was it often like the very first time they'd told anybody as well? Is it yes. something they'd carried shame with that within themselves? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of them, no one had no idea in their family that they went through that. Most of them. Some of them they did disclose. Um, and I think in one case, it was a woman and she said she disclosed and no one believed her. So it kept happening. The other cases, it was just a lot of shame, especially for the men. It was a lot of shame involved with disclosing that. It was just kind of something they carried with them 
up until that point. And so, and that's why it was like so important to have that balance between providing a safe space while holding them accountable at the same time, but providing a safe space enough for them to get what they need to release whatever they have released so that they can be truly healed. So they don't do this anymore. Cause we don't need nobody hurting some other people, hurting people again. And so that's why I think mm-hmm. prevention and treatment is so crucial and why we need people who do specialize in working with this population because we don't want it to happen again. If no other reason, that would be enough of a reason for it to not happen, for another kid not to be hurt again or a teen, you know, because I've heard some horror stories in my day working with that population. As much as it's my passion and I have a heart for it, oh, it's a lot of stories I've heard that it just, I wasn't ready for it and I had to go home and take care of myself because it was a lot to take. It was a lot to take in. And you hear a five-year-old disposing some stuff like, it's just like, oh my God, I'm, I'm dying. But it's just, and then you develop such an even stronger care for them. Not so much, like I said, the offenders, it's a difference, but for the ones who survived it. You know, like I said, I just had to purposely find something to care about for the offenders. I had to find something to care about. And that piece of them being sexually abused themselves helped me to guide them through and to have compassion and lead with that while at the same time holding them accountable. So I was trying to hold both at the same. So when we did come at them hard, they knew it was coming from a place of care. Outside looking at it, it could look like we were ripping their heads off. But, you know, it, it, that's what was necessary. We had to do it. Because if we sugarcoated it or made it cute, it wasn't going to work. It, they weren't going to change. What baffles me is that this type of work that you did in that group, um, it's not the done thing. Like that's, so what, you know, people go to prison, they don't go to prison for very long, then they come out and then I, I don't know what the statistics are, but I'm pretty sure those statistics are, there's well, probably a lot, of, a lot of repeat yeah. offenders. So yes, why is. is society, why is this not part of it should be seen as rehabilitation and it's not just about the offenders like you said it's that fact of Mm -hmm. it could continue to go on to hurt hurt more people so the fact that people don't even get you know what is it like five percent of cases go to trial or they actually get somebody Mm -hmm. behind bars you know Mm -hmm. so that that five percent that do end up in prison they're not even Mm -hmm. doing the rehabilitation so when those people come out they just could just carry on yeah just like any offender uh, but any person that goes to prison or some type of they don't get the treatment they need they don't you know and i understand some things is just like for example like drug charges so that's different but just people who done things as it relates to a mental thing you know I, I don't understand that you know but a lot of people don't get the treatment they need even people who get into a state of psychosis they don't get them treatment but that's a whole other soapbox in itself but as it relates to you know uh minor attracted persons or people sexually thin children they don't have the rehabilitation programs that are needed and like i said if they are there they're hitting because they are ostracized for working with that population and so it's not an easy thing to find so usually it might be something among like probation officers or the court systems that might know of programs that can you know aid them in being rehabilitated but you know i know they all have to register and be sex offenders they have to register every year for the rest of their life so there's a lot of restraints and stipulate new york was very stringent upon that you know you couldn't live within a couple of miles of a school or a park and so it was really difficult for a lot of them to find housing mm-hmm. but once again it's it's the conditions of your decisions you know, now some people, like I said, they it was just kind of like one situation, wrong place, one time. This was dumb, but him and his friends ran a train on this girl, not realizing she was a minor. Got in trouble. Now he's a sex offender. He was like, I thought she was 18. Well, man, I mean, first of all, why are you running trains on a girl anyway? 
Uh, I know she probably, I assume she consented. I don't know what the situation was, but the point was her parents found out about it, him and all his friends, now they're sex offenders, 15-year-old girl. Mm. So, you know, just those types of things. So now that's following him for the rest of his life. And he got kids himself. So now that's even a limitation. And I know some people have some circumstantial situations, uh, but that was an unwise decision as well. That was not smart. Not at all. So it's, yeah, it's a lot. And I think, once again, rehabilitation and prevention to me is a great place to start. Instead of ostracizing them and cast them out as outcasts of society, how we know what they're doing over there as outcasts? I'd rather be in the know and create and provide treatment and prevention to those who have not offended. But a lot of people don't want to work with that. But like I said, even the group I'm in with the minor attractive persons, I think it's probably like, from what I saw in the email, maybe 20 of us mm-hmm. in the whole country. Oh, so, wow. In the whole country. Because <laughs> again, though, you know, it's it, it's because it's, I know I've seen it where it's like, why are you calling it minor attracted? Um, you should call it a pedophile. This is what I see. This is what I've read. It's like, why are people calling it a minor attracted person? Call it what it is. Yeah. It's a pedophile. So it's it's hard because it's like, if they keep it within them, you know, they're probably more likely to go ahead and do something about it. But then exactly. if they come forward, I mean, I don't know what and side I sit on. I mean, this whole I conversation, know, I'm know. like, oh my God. I know, and it I is rough. It's it's just eye-opening. And I think I like to look at things from all angles, right? And I think the more that society can do that, um, like you said earlier, having an open mind and an open heart to these situations. Um, mm-hmm. Being a surviving myself, it's not that I'm like, yay, perpetrators. Like it's all. Oh, about of course not. Because why did they do yeah. it? Why did they do it? They, you know, like mm-hmm. you said, everything you explained with the accountability and the non-sugar yeah. pieces of it. It's not like you're, mm-hmm. you know, they're like holding their hands yeah. and it's all like, oh, you're exactly wrong. It's take that yeah. accountability and now how are we going to move mm-hmm. forward as a society? Absolutely. Because the, the reality is they're coming back in to society so how do you yes, bring them into society without thinking exactly. they're not going to do it again unless you exactly. do some kind of effort <laughs> to fix the situation exactly exactly because how can we fix it if we're not fixing it that's the whole piece of it and that's what it's like somebody got to work with the population because we don't want this to keep happening to kids kids don't need to keep going through stuff like this because it as we know it shapes our lives and even falls into adulthood. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so it's just even kids who have been sexually abused before they can remember, it still leaves an impression on the brain. Mm. It still does. Because for the longest time, even with myself, I didn't realize I had it in my history. In my, mm. And I'm like, well, it makes sense why I'm so drawn to, you know, mm. doing this work. But I had no idea because I wasn't even, I was, before I was even one years old, I didn't even know. Mm. So, and then something, I did a meditation where, boom, I'm like, well, there it is. So, you know, but to to prevent those things from happening, prevention and treatment has to be a, a cornerstone. It has to be. Can we eradicate it all the way? That would be my goal. I would love to eradicate it completely where yeah. I have no one else ever say they've ever had an experience like that ever again. Mm-hmm. That would be perfect. But while we can, why don't we try to take a step at reducing it the best way we can? 
yeah for sure this is it people like that could never happen but with that kind of thinking it would never happen you know yeah it's not easy to make change but the more times we keep talking about it we're going to keep talking about these uncomfortable conversations we're getting comfortable in the uncomfortable because that is the only way that things are going to change yes pedophiles exist yes people are attracted to minors yes people have gone through these experiences and they carry all that shame with them this Mm -hmm. is literally the reality so people need to wake Mm -hmm. up and just you know accept that it's happening and stop yeah. pretending it's you know turning a blind eye to it because it yes. makes me uncomfortable even hearing exactly. what we're talking about you know yeah. and I remember getting a read the last year sometime and she was like your job this is your purpose you talk about the things that happen in the dark and that's what we have to do somebody has to because it's yeah. happening too much in the dark we have to bring it to light yeah so this, with to. that said I mean we've covered a lot there I think this conversation mm-hmm. it will bring up a lot of emotions and you know sure. a lot of things to think about for mm-hmm. people in general um but Absolutely. you know just to wrap things up how have you because it is a difficult conversation and the work that you do it's not easy how do you look after mm-hmm. your own well-being and your own mindset throughout this all yeah yeah you definitely have to take care of yourself and I'm a person that believes in self-care even though you know, getting into the spiritual plane, you have colleagues and people who see right through you, even if you're lying. So, uh, yeah, the feedback <laughs> I got is like, I'm being hard headed and I'm not taking care of myself. And so this, when the year, the new year came in, I've been very intentional about doing that, about doing things that I enjoy, you know, um, even if it's something simple as me taking a nice bubble bath, just being intentional about self-care because self-care is paramount, especially in this field with this type of work, you have to put yourself first. And so, you know, something that my tantra teacher gave us or taxed us with was that can I dedicate at least 11 hours a week to pleasure and fulfillment? And so I don't keep tabs on it like I'm supposed to, but I know that, okay, did I dedicate 11 hours of my time to enjoy myself, to be fulfilled, to live in pleasure? Um, and then if I didn't get those 11 hours, I have to ask what happened? What was my mindset? What got in the way of me being able to get my 11 hours for the week? And so that's what I have to do to just keep myself afloat and to be able to continue to give, um, and keep my heart full as well. Cause I'm working on my heart as well with my heart work. So keeping my heart full, keeping it light, uh, doing my meditation, sitting in the sun, getting my energy from the sun. Just things like that to just help to keep things. Because if you don't, it will drag you down. Trust that I've had some depressive moments. I'm like, oh my God, I think I took all the person's stuff. So now, and I also have to protect my aura to ensure that Mm. I'm not taking on other people's stuff uh, because it's hard not to sometimes. But, you know, it's definitely just really, really making sure that I pour into myself because I pour into so many others. Yeah, like you say, you can't pour from an empty cup. Exactly. Because I'm no good to nobody. And that's why I take my quarterly breaks too. So every quarter I take a week off. Well, two weeks off in the summer, two weeks off in the winter, mm. and one week off in the fall and the spring. I mean, Just that is me. the dream. I wrote, I wrote at the start of this year, I'm going to travel every quarter. Oh, I, I love mean, it. I, I didn't do it though. That's <laughs> I'm going to start. Okay. So then we're in the second quarter. I mean, I've been doing a lot of just, you know, even getting out of London because I live in London, you know, I just sometimes just getting out on the weekend and making sure I go to a different part in England. So even though I've not traveled abroad, you know, I've made sure I've gone uh, just to change that grid, just to change that frequency, yes, just to change the yes. energy, like you say, sometimes you do need Absolutely. to have a, a reset. Um, yeah, you know. definitely. Yeah, you really do. And I think that's the piece where it can get, because I love traveling too. And I was just complaining to my husband the other day, like, man, I, uh, 
I'm used to traveling. I know you got, but I got to go somewhere because I get <laughs> antsy. And water is always my reset. The beach has oh, always yeah. been my thing. Water is my thing. Um, so just to have that and to reset and clear your mind and just be, because mm-hmm. I'm all, I know you're probably busy. I'm always, I'm doing 10,000 things all the time. So, you know, that's all my, like, you know what, let me get, provide the space and opportunity to just sit mm. and just be. I mean, it's, it's overlooked. <laughs> Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <For sure. laughs> well, um, well, it was so nice speaking with you. It, it, before yeah. we wrap things up, I know we focus heavily on the perpetrators here, but you do obviously work with survivors as well. So, do you have anything as like a sign off that you might want to say to the survivors yeah. who might be listening to this podcast? Yeah, definitely. And I will say, you know, take your process as a transformational process. Transformation is never easy, but it's beautiful what comes out on the other side. Some old things have to die to create some new things, but that new transform the transformative you is a beautiful you. So just keep pushing. You are a survivor and a thriver because I learned that term. A thriver is next level. So you are on that journey. Embrace yes. it. Yes, for the thriving. Yes. And how can people get in touch with you? Because I know there's lots of different ways. Yeah. What's the best way yeah. to reach? Yeah, so people can reach me. Uh, well, I got a couple of websites, but the best website will start with newcreationpsychotherapy.com. Um, and I also have a new creation site on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Dr. Kuplov is on the same as well, but Dr. Kuplov is more of a consultation. But for the Tantra and heart work, healing heart work is the Tantric MFT. So, you know, it, some people like to get a combo of mental health and the spiritual heart work, tantra work. So yeah, they can reach a tantric MFT or a new creation Thanks for listening. For more information, head to www.shushbox.com. We see you, we hear you, we believe you.